interesting times. So runs a very, very ancient curse, actually. And it's never more appropriate than when you apply it to the period of time that we're going to look at this morning. And as we explore this period of time, actually, our reading this morning, if you're following in the Pew Bible, it's in page 964. Page 964. It's a fascinating page. You can go home and say you have memorized an entire page of the Bible. Yes, 964. It's not actually numbered in that. These must be cheap Bibles. There's no number. (laughs) But the last numbered page is 962. Then we pick up again at Matthew. But 964, you see, is a blank page. It took 400 years to write that blank page. It's a fascinating page. We come to look. And it reminds us, you know, when you open the Bible as a whole, I mean, you get a variety of stories, you get a collection that's been made down through centuries. But I like to think, and maybe it's been very simple, but as I step on to Genesis 1, it's as if there's a road that spans out in front of me. Now, you can give that road technical names. You can call it unfolding redemptive history. You can call it progressive revelation. But it's a journey through the Bible. And as you journey through... You see, that road is actually not finished yet. That road's not going to be finished until you come to a consummation when Jesus returns before the Father and renders up the kingdom to him. That's the big story. You see, this is a refreshing road to look at because if you've noticed, one of the incredibly most popular words in Northern Ireland today seems to be we. You go into the restaurant, you want the wee menu? Do you like a wee dessert? Here's your wee bill. It was somewhere my daughter the other, well, a few weeks ago, she's 32. The receptionist, a reasonably intelligent looking young lady, said, And what's your wee name, dear? I'm dying to say, Do you want her big name as well? But we've got into this and so many Christians going, oh, that was a great wee word. Oh, that was a great wee word. And that was a lovely wee thought. And we have a wee word in a calendar and we have a wee word in a mirror and we have a wee word in pencils. And we've got so many wee words we've lost the big plot because the Bible has been reduced to an ammunition dump, a reservoir of inspirational thoughts for the day. And we've lost the big picture. We've lost the cosmic revelation of a dynamic plan that sweeps from creation through to new creation that takes you from Genesis 1 and creation to Revelation 21 to a God, the same God who's going to make all things new. There's a big picture. And when we open the scriptures and we trace that road, and this is what makes our faith different from any kind of Eastern mystical faith, a religion, is that at the end of that road there is a goal. Those of you who are kind of into philosophy, it's a teleological faith. The Bible has got a telos, it's got a goal, it's got a direction, it's got a climax. We're not caught up into some hopeless cycle of reincarnational theology. 
We're not caught into some system that we might one day escape out of to achieve nirvana. But we're actually going somewhere. And this is what makes the God of the Scriptures so unique. Who amongst the gods is like you? A God who has known the end from the beginning. And because of the nature of that God, he's been able to give us this unique collection of writing that in the Hebrew Scriptures he gives us the early stages of that revelation, and then at a pivotal moment intrudes into history in Jesus, records that event and interprets that event for us in the New Covenant. So when you begin to look at, you know, the sweep of the Bible of a whole, as a whole, there is something that gives it coherence. There is an element of discontinuity, yes, because when you come to the revelation of Jesus, there are new things. There is a fullness, a breadth, a depth, a richness that enables us to say there is a new covenant. But there is also an incredible continuity because every major word that we use in the course of the new covenant has been hammered out on the anvil of Israel. And as Tom Torrance taught many years in Edinburgh, has said, you know, it's long overdue that the church learned to go back to school with Israel and to discover our roots. That the story did not begin with Jesus. That this faith has roots. So whether you journey the road or whether you take Tom Wright's image of seeing the unfolding drama of Scripture in several acts, beginning with, you know, Act 1, creation, Act 2, the fall, and then Act 3, one of the biggest dramas of all, and yet a lot of kind of evangelical Christians overlook it. They land in Genesis 3 and use it as a springboard to get to John 3. And they live with a complete, if not indifference, an ignorance of all that's gone on before or between these two. Or if they do use it at best, it's simply to allegorize or spiritualize or moralize. And yet it's an incredibly important act in the drama. Leading up to Act 4, the coming and the revelation of God in the person of Jesus. And then Act 5, and this is where we take stage. We come onto the stage. We're living through Act 5 at the moment. Coming towards the climax. But you see, as you move through this drama, whether you're traveling the road or whether you're on stage, you at least need to know where you are. And that's why it's so important to have your own, as it were, GPS. To be able to plot where you are in this unfolding drama. And begin to understand that what happens, you know, there's something that leads up to it and something that goes on afterwards. So as we come to the end, and this morning we're going to hone in specifically just at the end of Act 3. The end of the history of, of Israel before this dramatic intrusion of God in the person of Jesus. Now, when we come to this, the road leads us to this point. It leads us to what in your, our pew Bible is page 964. It leads us up to the blank page, but then the journey goes on. But what we're going to do just for a little while is, as it were, take a strategic viewing point and look down over what's going on in this blank page. 
One of the most useful tools you can ever have when it comes to reading the Bible is your own little helicopter. Because there's just sometimes you need to get up and look down. You need to see the big picture. You need to see where the we word has a big context. You need to begin to understand where the individual fits in to the Oh, to the big story on a universal level, where the particular fits into the universal, where the local fits into the global, where that particular event is part of a cosmic plan. So when we look at the blank page, what we're doing is, yes, it's good to step back, and we want to bring back people to the Bible, but sometimes we need to step back of the Bible. For the simple reason that God did not reveal truth in a vacuum. God did not reveal truth in a way that was indifferent to either geography or history. In fact, that's one of the unique things about the revelation of the God of Israel. He links himself to places and to times. I mean, when you read through the Bible, you discover it's dotted with references to places that are as famous as kind of a hochel, Carnalbana. They don't mean anything to people who are visiting Northern Ireland. But, you see, these are the little places, the little places in, in the Middle East that became pivotal because at that point God revealed himself. So as we look through this period, when you're traveling, when you begin the journey right through Genesis and you're traveling right through the patriarchs, through the exodus, through the return, through the conquest, through the monarchy, through the exile, through the return, it's as if we suddenly come to a red light. Please, wait here. You're good at the red lights. The interesting at red lights, all the wee boy racers come out see the wee foot sitting over the accelerator just waiting for the red to change and then where we go this is a red light that's going to keep you for 400 years it's a period of silence it's a period where if you learn nothing else it's a period to reflect on developing a theology of waiting and it's a place that challenges us to think about the role of waiting in the Bible. Because we've now, largely in the West, bought into a kind of a trite, cliched, superficial evangelicalism that God's not real unless it's miracle a moment, thrill a moment, unless it's ecstasy per day. And we can't cope with the waiting. Here is a blank page that is a challenge to begin to reread the Bible and see, much, see how much waiting there is. The waiting on the part of Abraham and the matriarchs as well. The waiting on the part of Israel. The waiting that punctuates the entire scripture. The waiting of a Hannah. The waiting of a Simeon. The waiting, the longing, the anticipation over against this kind of instant mania that's being perpetuated today. The Bible has a lot to say about waiting. And when you come to this period between really the time, the timeline, the end of Malachi and the beginning of the New Testament, you find during these 400 years 
A lot is happening. Now, obviously, we don't have time to look at it now. But I want to use, well, just so that we can begin to get our mind around it, because obviously you're going through the, the, the big picture of the Bible, which is super. But I'm going to suggest three animals and a bird that can possibly help us get a little bit of a handle on this blank page. And these animals are going to help us think kind of big. There is a goat. There is a lion that roars. There is an eagle that lands. And there is a lamb that's born. Now that's very simple and very straightforward. What are we? We've got a goat that charges. We've got a lion that roars. We've got an eagle that lands and a lamb that's born. Got it? With me? What have we? We have a goat that charges, a lion roars, eagle that lands, and a lamb was born. Very, very simple and very, very straightforward. And in a way, we're tapping in to some biblical pictures themselves. Because the goat that charges is Alexander the Great. We're not being derogatory about him. We're using the same language that Daniel used in his kind of cryptic references to this man in a piece of literature we, in terms of genre, call apocalyptic literature, which often makes cryptic references to individuals rather than name them literally. So Daniel actually refers to Alexander as the he-goat that charges from the West. The book of Maccabees which, well, we, we prods don't often read. <laughs> that's one of the bits that's not in our Bible. But even the Westminster Confession acknowledges that we can read books like this with profit. We find the lion that roars is Judas Maccabeus. Then the eagle lands, the imperial might of Rome, who's going to dominate the scene for the lion or the lamb to be born. Let's look at them. Just, we're going to survey this period because the history becomes absolutely fascinating. You see, the goat that charges, well, listen to Daniel's version. Daniel saw a ram which magnified itself. This was his cryptic allusion, by the way, to the power of Persia to the pride that arrogated itself and dominated so much of the ancient world. But a he-goat came from the west and smote the ram, and there was none who could deliver the ram out of his hands. That was Daniel's portrayal of Alexander the Great. Now, Alexander comes on to our scene. Now, this is ever so easy to remember. The date of his coming onto the major historical scene? Well, this is dead easy because you know people in, in Northern Ireland, they're very good with numbers. They, they can take complicated numbers and remember them, like one, six, nine, oh. They never seem to forget it. Well, this makes history even easier. Alexander steps onto the stage, three, three, three. And he sweeps across, defeating the Persians at one of the most famous of ancient battles at Isis in 
the year 333, and the map says it all. Here is a man without hammers, without helicopters, who pushes the Greek military machine right through to the very north of India. And in ten years, he's going to dominate the world because he dies in 323. He couldn't have made memorization any easier. And although he dies, well, his dream does not die. Because Alexander left an incredible legacy. There was Alexander, the philosopher, there is Alexander, the military, you know, genius. But there is Alexander, the visionary, who was, in a sense, the first ecumenist. Because his vision was for one ecumene, one world, speaking one language, sharing one culture. This was the Greek, this was the Hellenic vision which at one and the same time was much more grandiose and much more self-assured than virtually any ideology that had predated him. Alexander, well, and the Greeks have given us a legacy that's still with us to this very day. You can see it all around the place in terms of architecture, in terms of medicine. You even go into the kitchen. It's hygiea that has dictated hygiene. It is the Greeks who have given us the rule by the demos, the democracy. It is the Greeks who gave us the museum and highlighted, you know, and elevated the intellectual worldview. It is the Greeks who have enslaved so many of us today who are sitting thinking, will this man be finished in time for our dinner? Because we are dominated so often by chronos by chronology. And some cynics said we'd be far better named as chronosapiens rather than homosapiens because we're always in a rush. We're dictated by time. But what happens at this period as a result of Alexander's vision, something quite dramatic begins because you get the heirs of Hercules confronting the seed of Abraham you get the beginning of a clash between two radically different worldviews. One fundamentally homo, anthropocentered, man-centered, human-centered, and one profoundly biblical, one profoundly God-centered, the Hebraic worldview. And really, it's not, you know, without being personal, all of us need to ask just how much grease is in my hair. Because without even thinking about it, even as products of our own educational system, we've got an incredible amount of Greek thinking in our head. Incredibly so. Because from this period onwards, there begins the intensity of a clash uh, that's still, I believe, fundamentally with us. The Hebraic or the biblical worldview and the Hellenic. You see, between these two points of view, our world really has to make choices. After Alexander's death, well, his reign, his empire was divided between his successors. These diodoche, or diodoche, these were the men who would fight over his land, over his empire. Now, interestingly, there are two of them very important from a biblical point of view. Remember what the book of Daniel said? 
The goat became very great, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off, and in its place, four prominent horns grew up. But they will not have the same power. Now these four horns, two of which are so profoundly important biblically, because the two that are most important biblically are two families known as the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids in sort of Central Asia. They became identified with what in the book of Daniel are called the kings of the north and the kings of the south. And between these two, an intense struggle actually begins to emerge. And if you look, you don't have to be a a great geographer, when you look at the place, you see, of Israel, it's halfway up the Mediterranean coast. It's like being in the middle of a tug of war. And in the next few centuries, after the death of Alexander, in the three centuries, over 200 military campaigns are fought up and down this coastline. They are fought for this as the kings of the north struggle with the kings of the south. And the scene changes as the power influence of, you know, the power spheres do change down through the years. Initially, it is the kings of the south are dominating what we call Israel and the Holy Land. But at a later stage, due to the great power of a, of a Seleucid called Antiochus III, the map changes and the Seleucids sweep right down. Behind the scriptures, there is so much geography that's going on. For our interest, it's one of these Seleucids in particular who was an incredibly evangelistic missionary for the Alexandrian dream. His vision was to pass on into the world this great Hellenic vision of one world, one language. This was your original emergence of a theological Tesco's. Take two gods and we can put in a third. Laugh not. We live in our own theological Tesco's today. Uh, Not just a theological Tesco's, but for 55 pounds, you not only can get a Buddha, you can have an M and S Buddha for your garden. You see, the vision of Antiochus Epiphanes was, well, let's create this theological Tesco's. We'll move in, we'll adopt, we'll adapt. But he hadn't quite reckoned on the stubbornness and the loyalty of a monotheistic group of Jews. And under the reign of Antiochus, this clash between the Greek and the Hebrew culture came to an intense expression. I want you to imagine life in this time. Just let me give you a little bit of a sampler of it. What one historian is called a period of a bait-up pin-up culture. Baited pin-up culture. See, what did it mean to be godly? What did it mean to be faithful to the people of God? In a period when a culture was beginning to threaten you, when all around you there's, in the name of sophistication, cultural integrity, cultural creativity... When all the time the temptation are there, what did it mean when this started to creep into a home? When this started to create a tension between a young athletic man 
a Jewish man who had been raised in a Torah-observant home, but then he wanted to be trendy. He wanted to be cool. He would even go to the degree of having the physical sign of circumcision cosmetically changed surgically so that he could participate in the Greek athletics, potentially an Olympian. But the tension that caused with his traditional family, with the Torah-observant parents, how, to what degree, do you assimilate with your culture? You see, what did it mean? Where do you fit in in the spectrum? Because at one extreme, you have got the kind of the Greco-Hellenistic world, and you've got in the other extreme, the very tight world of the ancient Hebrew traditions. How were you going to live out your life? Where did you fit in in the spectrum? There were those who would say, we'll go for full participation in our society. We, we will so participate in our culture, we will lose all our Jewish distinctiveness. There will be others, they would go down the route of total separation. There would be those who would go so far to the right that technically in Northern Ireland Hebrew we'd call them the wee tight men. These are the wee hard men. These are the wee guys who go so far to the right they can be wrong. And they withdraw. There the boys standing up in Jerusalem come out from among them and be separate. Down they go to the Qumran community at the Dead Sea. Tight. These guys were so strict. This is, by the way, not for delicate, sensitive ears, and I'm not in any way trying to be indelicate, but I can show you the texts and the Dead Sea Scrolls. These guys were so tight, they wouldn't even allow a bowel movement on the Sabbath. No new religious movements ever started there. <laughs> But you see, you can get a type of religion that becomes so tight, so exclusive, so isolationist, so extreme, in reaction to a type of religion that has so assimilated, so culturally adapted, it's lost its distinctiveness. These were not easy days to be alive. These were days that presented real tensions. And in one particular little village, a little village called Modi'in, one man, Matathias, had just had enough when one of the priests of Zeus sent by Antiochus was forcing and inviting the others to worship at Zeus. Matathias speared him and called his sons and the Jews to revolution. And so the lion started to roar. Because Mattathias had a family of several sons, the most significant of whom was a man called Judas Maccabee. And it was under Judas that there was a blow for freedom. There was striking attempt to create independence amongst the Jewish people. Judas, sometimes called the Hammerhead, actually led the Maccabean revolt. Now think about this, for a hundred, where well, they were waiting for independence, in about the year 165, Judah struck this blue for independence. 
They'd been longing for this. 722, the Assyrian come. 586, the Babylonian had come. Then the Persian had come. Then the Greek would come. Oh, now we will have liberation. And walk the land of Israel to this day. You see the evidence of the Maccabees. Some of the flowers that are actually called the blood of the Maccabees. Men who shed their blood so that the land would be independent. And in 165, Judas Maccabeus entered Jerusalem and they met him with palm fronds. And he rededicated the temple that had been desecrated by that awful man, Antiochus Epiphanes. And as they rededicated the temple, to this day they still light what's called the Hanukkah lamp. And they celebrate this rededication of the temple to this day, just about the middle of December. This wonderful celebration that the Maccabees commanded that they would observe down through the centuries. Interestingly, Jesus participated in that celebration. Do you remember John tells us it was the Feast of Dedication in, or Hanukkah at Jerusalem? It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple. Was it the Hanukkah lamp that Jesus possibly was referring to when he really put a, a lamp on people's intentions when he says, why do you light a lamp? Because when the Hanukkah lamp was lit, it couldn't be put out. You couldn't do anything that brought you personal profit while it was lit. So Jesus, But in Pharisaic tradition, you could put it under the bed, you could put it behind a partition, you couldn't put it out. But when it spelt self-denial, you could put it behind a partition or under the bed. You see, when Jesus asked that question, why do you light the lamp? Do you light the lamp with the intention of letting it burn on even when it means self-denial on your part? It wasn't some stupid question. You know the way we treat it in the West as some sort of stupid question. Why do you light a lamp? Get the light, of course. That's not his question. His question is about intention. Why do you light the lamp? Yeah, you want to make a political statement. Yes, you want to make a religious statement. But are you prepared to live with the self-denial as the light shines? Jesus in context. Judas eventually gave way to his brother, Simon. And Simon, 20 years later, rode into Jerusalem. And how did they greet him? With palm fronds. Why do I mention this? 165. Judas came in and they greeted him with palm fronds. 141. Simon came in. They greeted him with palm fronds. If you had been in the Roman administration, wouldn't you be getting a little bit edgy? When this Galilean came down from the north and the people rushed out to meet him with palm fronds. You see, history provides the context for understanding so many of the things. These Maccabean rulers, actually several of them, are mentioned in the course of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Jonathan himself is referred to as the wicked priest. 
another Dead Sea Scroll uh, describes one of his sons, John Hyrcanus, as the man of Belial. Another is referred to as the Lion of Wrath. And the more we explore these Dead Sea Scrolls, the more we get an insight into kind of the apocalyptic nervousness of this period. And it would be lovely, in one sense, if we say, oh, the Jews ruled. Everything became happy ever after. But it was the story of rivalries, of brothers hating brothers. It would make any modern soap opera really read like a faith mission pilgrim's diary. These were intense days of machinations, of Machiavellian plotting, of murders, of strife. These were difficult days. And that strife came to something of a head when the two sons of Salome Alexandra set themselves up against each other. Hyrcanus and Aristobulus. And a little Machiavellian fellow working in the background a little guy called Antipater, real little psychophant, real little bootlicker. He's important not in the Bible, but he's important in as much as he was daddy to Herod the Great. So Herod doesn't come out of a vacuum. And such was the intensity of this rivalry that by about 64, they called in an external arbitrator. And about 64, Rome arrived. Pompey arrived. And the Roman might was there to stay. The eagle had landed. And that eagle was to spread its wings right over the life and the times of Jesus, right into the time of the early Acts of the Apostles. The Roman presence was very real. It was only because of that Roman power that Herod was allowed to rule the Jews. So that all of this sort of Machiavellian plotting, the ups and the downs and the ins and the outs, when we begin to look at them, this is all in the context too of growing sophisticated culture. You know what, this time the Greeks were building and the Romans followed suit they're great temples. And what I find, you ever wonder how God has a sense of humor? Let me suggest to you that the God of Israel has a phenomenal sense of humor. Or at least a phenomenal sense of irony. Because you see, the Greeks were building their great temples. We've all seen them in the tourist boards. And as they built their great temples, fascinatingly, one of the leading Greek architects of the day, a man called Vitruvius, was fascinated by the proportions of the human body. He said the proportions of the human body is fundamental to achieving beauty and the proportions of the temple followed the proportions of the human body. Hence you've got Vitruvius' very famous man in the square and man in the circle. You try this at home. This is a wonderful way, by the way, to make a new friend. If you want to find out if you are built symmetrically, the distance from the tip of this finger to the tip of that one should be identical from, as the distance from the top of your head to the soles of your feet. And your belly button should be exactly in the middle. So you can get a friend to measure if you are built proportionally. 
Am I in symmetry? But quite seriously, here's the irony. When the Greeks, when Vitruvius was taking the model of the human body as the basis to build the temples in which they would put the gods of the Greeks, the God of Israel moved out of a house of stone and moved in to a temple body where the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Isn't that ironic? When the rest of the world was putting up buildings to house their gods, the God of Israel expressed the ultimate in solidarity and identity with his people, having been in the garden, having been in the tent, having been in the temple, then came in the flesh, and the fullness of the Godhead dwelt bodily in our midst. And the Lamb had come. The Lamb had come to initiate the beginning of the end. But God had chosen a modus operandi, a way that is so antithetical to the way that the world thinks. Because he wasn't born in a palace. He wasn't born as the leader of a great army. He came to express himself in the humility of the sacrificial lamb. And so you see, during these years, where you've had the great dream of Alexander spreading, where you have had the failure of the state under the Hasmoneans, where you have got the empire striking with the Romans, today, in South Belfast, we remember the beginning of the kingdom. The kingdom that started to come with the coming of Jesus. When we look at this period, I think the more I reflect on this blank page in the Bible, you know, it makes me think, Lord, can't you do things quicker? Can you imagine what it was like living for those 400 years? What was it like for Simeon and Anna? Through days where the temptation was very real to assimilate with your culture. Through days when only fuddy-duddies stayed faithful to the tradition. Through days where politically, socially, in so many different ways, it was difficult, it was painful to remain faithful. And you're crying out, Lord, isn't it time for you to work? Here is a period that surely reminds us that in God's plan there is a time and there is a place for waiting. Because as we continue to live as believers, we live still with a weight on our minds. A weight that spans from Jesus' ascension and ascending of the Spirit until he returns. Like those days, days when the prophets seem to be silent, days when the temptations are real, Days when it's so, so easy to give up. These are the days where maybe in a fresh way we need to take time to contemplate afresh page 964 and to know that there God is already at work. God who knows the big picture 
is in control. So it's a page that's well worth thinking about. Enter into that world and begin to learn some of the profound lessons as we continue to live with a weight on our minds, but an incredible hope also in our hearts.